Christ is risen. He's risen indeed. Amen. Please do take your Bibles and open them with me to Luke chapter 24. We'll read a familiar account today of one of Jesus' resurrection appearance, appearances uh, to the disciples traveling on the road to Emmaus. We'll read Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. You can find that on page 885 if you picked up a Bible on the way in. Luke chapter 24. And before we go to God's word, please join me uh, in a word of prayer asking for God's blessing on its reading and hearing. O Lord, our God, we pray that as we come to your word, you would do what is necessary to open our eyes just as you did what is necessary and to open the eyes of these that uh, we will see you speaking to in your word. Help us, O Lord, to see something of our resurrected Savior. Feed us and meet us and make our hearts burn within us as you open the words to us. We pray that you would do it for your name's sake, and we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hear now God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 24. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and as they were talking with each other about these things that had happened, and while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Clopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty and deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him over to be condemned to death and crucified him, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides, all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, Slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. For it's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, and blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, 
and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amen. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. As I was driving through town this week, I saw a sign in Concord Center advertising the annual spring business recycling event. It's one of those trash cleanup days. Uh, you know, you, you gather together all your boxes of documents and they'll shred them for you and you bring in your, uh, your fluorescent light bulbs and they'll see that they go to the right facilities and, and you know, if you've got that sort of thing laying around, that's pretty helpful. That's all the stuff that you look at and you don't know how to get rid of and so it just tends to pile up. And you know you're not supposed to just throw it in a dumpster somewhere, but what else are you going to do with this? And so it's good if, if you have those things. You know, at some point we all have things that we need to get rid of that we don't know what to do with. It's like that house somewhere in your neighborhood. You've seen it. And there is that old broken down couch out on the curb. And they went through all the trouble to get it out there. And then the garbage man came and he left and did not take the couch. They've got a new one in the living room so they, they can't bring it back in. And it's sitting out there soaking up the rain for weeks. And who knows what to do with it. Sometimes we have things we don't know how to get rid of. You know, our lives as believers, as Christians, can be like that. There's some kinds of spiritual rubbish that we know exactly how to get rid of. And the Bible tells us, it promises us that Jesus will take all of our sins and all of our anxieties and, and all of our burdens and all we have to do is ask, just Get it to the curb, and it will all be taken away. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So There are things that we know we can leave with him, and we can trust that he will take them away. We believe that Jesus is able to come to our aid. But what if the trash that you don't know how to get rid of is doubt? What if your problem is with belief and all that God has promised? You know, doubt is a pretty broad category. It shows up in lots of different ways and lots of different people. All the way from outright uh, disbelief, probably the most serious kind of doubt. You've, you've heard the message of Jesus, the Savior who was crucified and, and raised again three days later, and you simply do not believe it. You will not believe it. You cannot believe it. Maybe there's somebody like that here this morning. If there is, we're glad you're here. Uh, we're glad to have you. I'm glad for all of the rest of you, too. But uh, there are other kinds of doubt. There, there's doubt that focuses more on ourselves than it does on the Lord. Sure, you believe that God is able to forgive, and he's even willing to forgive, but have you believed strongly enough? Have you prayed hard enough? Have you done enough to deserve that mercy that he says that he will give? Are you able to take part in what he promises? There's also doubt that's almost entirely non-existent. I mean, 99.9% .9 of the time, most of your life, you believe everything the Lord has said and his grace is wonderful and refreshing and it's the most beautiful part of your life. You rejoice in it every day, but sometimes, and you can't even put your finger on where it's come from, somewhere in the back of your mind you wonder, you have that spark, what if it's not true? And you shake it away. And you go on, and, and you go back to that 
Doubt shows up in lots of different ways. But the strange thing is that whatever form our doubt takes, somehow we tend to convince ourselves that doubt is the only thing that Jesus can't handle. When it comes to our disbelief and our doubt that we're all alone, that's the thing that we have to get over before we can bring it to the Lord and before we can come to Him and trust Him. And so we're alone in our doubt and we're stuck in our doubt and we're worried that if we try to put it on the curb it's just going to sit there like some dirty old broken couch soaking in the rain and everyone's going to see it and know that we don't know what to do with it. Well, we tend to think that God is not able to take our doubts. What we find in Luke chapter 24 is that God already knows that we have our doubts and our disbelief. And he specializes in getting rid of that kind of rubbish. That's what we see Jesus doing as he meets with these disciples on the road. He is dealing with their doubt. He is not a stranger to disbelief. As I was preparing for today, I was really tempted. I had to fight the urge not to preach the entire chapter. We're going through Joseph, and sometimes those chapters are large. So I said, "Ah, all right, we'll we'll just do the section in the middle. Uh, But really, I wanted you to see all of it, because when you see the whole chapter together, it really brings out this idea of doubt that we might be tempted to overlook in the disciples that we've seen today. Doubt's there on the Emmaus Road. We see it, uh, Jesus responds in verse 25, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe. Here they were, walking with Jesus incognito. And Clopas uh, is even able to give a fairly accurate rendering of all that Jesus had done and all that had happened to him. He was a prophet, mighty indeed, and we thought he was going to be the redeemer, but he was condemned and he was killed by our rulers. And now the third day later, and there's an empty tomb and a vision of angels, but we still haven't found him. And he can recite the whole story, but he still doesn't believe it. And Jesus meets these disciples walking away from everything. All the rest of the apostles are still back in Jerusalem, and they've turned their backs, and maybe they're simply going home. Reality has set in. It's all over. And doubt fills their hearts, and they're walking in the wrong direction. And Jesus comes, and he knows what's going on. He's not unfamiliar with our doubts. But as we see it in context, we realize that these disciples aren't alone in their disbelief either. We could divide this chapter into three sections if we were going to preach the whole thing. Uh, That sits well with me. I like three-point sermons. Uh, But the, the section before this one, before the Emmaus Road, is the account of the women who go to the tomb early in the morning. And they go to anoint a body, and there is no body to anoint. Instead, they see angels in an empty grave. And the angels announce... You know, just as Jesus said he was going to, you remember what he said, don't you? Just as he said he was going to, he has been raised. They hear and they remember and they go back to tell the others. They go to find the 11 apostles gathered together and come on, if anybody is going to understand and remember and connect the dots and say, yes, of course he was going to be raised. It's going to be the apostles, right? They will believe. It says in verses 10 and 11, it says that when they told the apostles, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. 
idle tale. That's a, a nicer way of saying that here comes Mary and Mary and Joanna and the rest, and they meet with the apostles, and they tell them what they've seen, and the apostles look at one another, and they say, ah, you know how women can be. This is an emotional time, and so they don't even entertain it. It's not just that they disbelieve it. They disregard it. They don't even entertain it. It's an idle tale. It's just gossip. No need to listen to that. And then after the Emmaus uh, experience, the disciples come back to Jerusalem, and everybody's there, and Jesus himself shows up. And you see it in verse 38, what he says to them. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He's right there, right in front of their faces. He says, I've got flesh and bone. You can see me. You can touch me, and he shows them his hands. He's right in front of their faces, and then verse 41. They still disbelieved for joy. It was too amazing. And still they doubted. So you see, Jesus is familiar with our disbelief. He is not scandalized by the fact that disciples may have some doubts. Not as though he's confounded and he doesn't know what to do with them. And Jesus has seen all kinds of doubts. Even on the day of his resurrection, that's what he was doing. He was dispelling disbelief, and he's seen all kinds of it. He's seen the skepticism on the Emmaus Road, and that skepticism falls in between the old wives' tale of verse 11 and the too-good-to-be-true of verse 41. He's seen the entire gamut of your doubts and your disbelief. He's not surprised. Now, that's important for us to see for at least two reasons. First, because one of the most uh, prevalent ways that people tend to dismiss the resurrection as as historical fact today is they say, well, you know, those first century believers just believed that sort of thing because they didn't have any doubts. It was easy to believe. You know, first century people, they were gullible. They were superstitious. Better yet, they were pre-scientific. And so all that miraculous mumbo-jumbo, that's what everybody believed back then, right? Of course they believed it. That's not the case at all. They believed the resurrection despite their doubts, despite their misgivings, despite their initial disbelief that there's no way that that has happened. What does that tell you? It tells you that they believed, not because they wanted to believe, but because it actually happened. Because they became witnesses of something that spoke to them more loudly than all the voices of distrust that they were tempted to listen to. They witnessed Jesus. They saw him. And when they finally got to the place that, yes, it is really good, and yes, it is true, well, then their doubts were relieved. So we need to understand that that it actually happened, and they believed despite these doubts. But we also need to know that what Jesus wants is to bring his people to the place where their doubts are exposed rather than brushed under the rug and the carpet and hidden away. There is this curious uh, tidbit here. Verse 16, Jesus drew near to them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing them. That's strange. Jesus has been raised. Why doesn't he just show up and show everybody that he's been raised? Why doesn't he show up on the road to Emmaus the same way that he showed up on the road to Damascus in a blinding light, in a booming voice? 
But there's something more important than wowing his disciples with his presence. You see, he draws near to them to to teach them and to lead them step by step. To ask them, "Well, well, what do you understand? And maybe what have you missed? What do you need to know still about who I am and what I've done? That's the way that Jesus works. We see him all throughout the Gospels, and he's perfectly able to draw a conversation in exactly the right direction, just where he wants it, at just the right time, and he does it here in order to bring their doubts to the forefront. He leads them to the place where their shattered hopes are on full display just so he can show them how capable he is of dealing with disbelief. That's how he deals uh, with disbelief and doubt. He exposes it in light of who he actually is. And that's what we see beginning in verse 25 to the end of the chapter. We see Jesus eliminating doubt in his disciples and he does it by revealing himself to them. By proving that he actually is who he said he was. That he is faithful to continue and bring to fruition all that he said he was going to do. That's the same way that he deals with our doubts. Not hiding them, not by ignoring them. But by exposing our doubts to the reality and the truth of who he is. One way that Jesus does that is that he changes our perspective. Look again at verses 25 and 26. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? See, Jesus is telling Clopas and his friends that they don't believe the resurrection because they've been looking for the wrong kind of Savior all along. said in verse 21 that they wanted a Redeemer. That's fine so far as it goes. They wanted a Messiah, somebody who would show up and release them from bondage and slavery. That's what a Redeemer does in the Bible. But they were utterly unprepared for redemption to come in the form of a sacrifice. And this idea of redemption, of buying back from oppression and slavery, it's all over Scripture. It is prevalent in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the New Testament, there are basically two words that are used to express this idea. One of them is very common, and one of them is rare. Now, this is the rare one uh, in verse 21, when they say, we had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. It shows up only two more times in the New Testament. But a few centuries before Jesus, some of the rabbis got together, and they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And all over the Hebrew, uh, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you find this word that they use that's so rare in the New Testament. It shows up in the first place in Exodus chapter 6 in connection with uh, God delivering his people from Egypt. Here's what he says. He's speaking to Moses. The Lord's speaking to Moses. He says, say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. You see the kind of flavor of redemption that word is talking about. And then later in the Psalms and the prophets, lots of different times when they look back, when Israel remembers what the Lord had done, his judgment and his mighty acts to bring his people out of Egypt. They use this word over and over again. And and they use this word anytime they look forward to the Lord doing something just like that all over again. 
God, the mighty one, the one who will redeem Israel with a strong right arm. The redeemer who comes in plague and hail and fire and darkness and the death of the firstborn. The one who comes in judgment to draw his people out. And that's what they're looking for. We thought he was going to be the one to come with the strong right arm. And Jesus looks so promising. He was a prophet mighty in word, mighty in deed. And maybe God's judgment has come upon the Roman oppressors at last. Hallelujah, redemption is here. And instead, Jesus is judged. He's condemned. He's put to death. And all their hopes of redemption died on that cross with Jesus. They could not conceive of a Messiah who would both die and deliver in the same last breath. It was unfathomable for them. And Jesus is telling them, of course, they're not going to believe Easter Sunday because they had still not understood Good Friday. They've been looking for the wrong kind of Savior. They need a new perspective on who Jesus is and what he came to do. That's the same reason that we struggle with doubt. Think back to that person who cannot wrap their mind around the fact that forgiveness could be as free as the gospel makes it out to be, and they're always tottering on the fence of, have I prayed enough, have I done enough, have I repented well enough? And it looks like they're doubting themselves, but underneath it is a misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and how sufficient his sacrifice is for his people. Does Jesus cover most of your sin? A simple majority of your sin so that you can work out the rest? Or has he come to gift his people with perfect righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone? You see, when you start to to grasp really what the gospel is all about, it eliminates those doubts. That's the first step to getting rid of that doubt is to seeing a new perspective, what the Lord has revealed about what Jesus has actually come to do. You know, in the time of the Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation, this is after the Reformation really got moving, uh, and now the Roman Catholic Church was starting to, to... to gather the circle the wagons, as it were, against the, uh, the Protestants and to define more clearly their own doctrines, there was a cardinal by the name of Robert Bellarmine, a Catholic cardinal, uh, an anti-Protestant, if you will, a counter-Reformationist. And he said, the greatest error of the Protestant Reformation is... How would you answer that question? How would you answer that statement if you were Robert Bellarmine? The greatest error of the Protestant Reformation is assurance of salvation. That's what he said. Because he knew that if you put all the other pieces together, salvation by Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone, what they do is they get rid of doubt. And they give you a certainty of your faith that you could have in no other way. This is what Jesus has come to do, to give us the right perspective about who he is and what he's done, to banish the doubt that we don't know what to do with on our own. You know, at the other end of the spectrum are those that that doubt that forgiveness is even necessary. Of course they don't believe that Jesus is the resurrected Savior because they don't believe that there's anything from which they need to be saved. 
And we read today in Romans and Hosea and all this language of righteousness and judgment and pardon and, and all that language of heaven and hell. It makes no sense. It's all foolishness to them. And underneath that doubt that it is actually true, that it has anything to do with them, it's a failure to grasp what all of God's prophets were pointing to, that there was a Messiah coming, there was a Savior coming, who would give his life as a ransom for many because we are a people who need to be ransomed from our sins. And Jesus changes our perspective. He hasn't come to release the Jews from the Romans. He hasn't come to release us from any political oppression or external oppression. He's come to release us from the slavery of our sin. The oppression that grips the wickedness of our hearts. He's come to set us free from that, to be our Redeemer. He's come to shed His blood for the sins of His people. And the first step to eliminating spiritual doubt is to see Jesus as He really is. And Jesus changes our perspective. He also opens our eyes. Now this happened for the disciples in Emmaus, literally. Uh, verse 31. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And that's a reminder, isn't it? These disciples were unable to get rid of their doubts by their own strength, and by their own initiative. The language of verse 31, just like the language of verse 16, is passive. Verse 16 says their eyes were kept from recognizing. Verse 31 says their eyes were opened. And yes, later they'll look back on this, uh, this trip with Jesus where he spoke to them and opened the word and they'll say, oh, our hearts were burning and we longed for it and we wanted it and we wanted to believe that it was true and there was hope again welling up that we thought was dead. And they'll reminisce a little bit and just at the right moment their eyes are opened and and faith had become sight, and the whole time, what were they doing? Drinking it in. Receiving. They were passive. And the Lord opened their eyes. That ought to be a humbling thought for us. We live in an age and a culture that thrives on the power of information. We set ourselves free if we have enough information. And we've got data and we've got opinion and calculations at our fingertips and in our pockets and on our phones any time of the night or day. And we tell ourselves by amassing all of this information, we are redeeming ourselves from the oppression of ignorance. And with the right information, we can make the right choices and we can go in the right direction and we can choose the right path and we will be our own saviors and direct our destiny. And these disciples had just received an information overload. You hear again what it says. Jesus began with Moses and all the prophets, and he opened to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It's probably at least a two and a half hour walk, two hours at a fast pace, seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and there is Jesus opening scripture after scripture after scripture, and they're not chronicled here for us, and he probably went through an awful lot of them, but Jesus is starting to give them all the information that they needed and that they didn't have. And what we almost expect is that when they get to Emmaus, they'll say, you know what? I think I've figured it out. I think I've done it. I've gotten all the right information and I've put it together and maybe they go home and they hop on their blog and they start to do a little bit of humble brag. Hashtag feeling blessed because I figured it out today. And that's not what happened. Until the Lord opens their eyes, 
Even all of that information doesn't help them. Jesus himself opening the scriptures to them, and they still need to have their eyes open. They are at the mercy of the Lord, waiting on him to take away their blinded eyes and their unbelief, and so are you. Paul says it works this way, so that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And this ought to humble us a little bit. It should also encourage us, though, folks. This is not something that you can do for yourselves to open your own eyes, but it is something that the Lord delights to do for his people. One of my favorite parts of ministry is being a part of, of the new membership classes when we bring in new members into our church, because in our church, everybody has to sit and tell their own testimony of what the Lord did in their life to be admitted to membership. We get to hear some stories that sound spectacular and some that sound boring to the outside world. But there are a few patterns that I've heard over and over and over again. One of them, it goes a little bit like this. Well, I came to the point, maybe I was raised in a Christian home, or maybe I had no Christian background at all, but I came to the point where I realized that my entire life from here forward would hinge on what I believed about Jesus. Was he the Savior or was he nothing? And I didn't know what to do. And so I grabbed a Bible. I didn't even know where to open it. I didn't even know who I was praying to, but I prayed some short little prayer like this. Lord, I don't know if you're there. I don't know if this is real. But if it is, I pray that you would help me to see this. And then I started reading. And my eyes were opened. And no, Jesus didn't appear physically and bodily. No, there were no visions of angels or, or audible voices. They probably didn't even experience what Blaise Pascal called fire and tears of joy, joy, joy. But for the first time, they see Jesus. Their eyes are open to his love and his salvation, and everything is changed. Not by their own strength, but because God delights to give this gift to those who ask him. Back in Luke chapter 4, and you don't have to turn there, but at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Jesus said that opening eyes was one of the reasons that he had come. He came into a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he quoted Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who were oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he said that all of it had been fulfilled in him. Jesus is the one who opens blind eyes. He knows what to do with the doubt that you don't know how to get rid of. He knows how to take it away. And so if you are longing to be rid of some doubt, maybe some massive doubt, maybe some little doubt, do what so many others have done. Search the scriptures truly. Call out to the Lord from the bottom of your heart, even if you're not yet sure that he's there or listening and begin to read and see if he doesn't open your eyes he knows what to do with our doubt he knows how to open our blind eyes and deal with it there's one more way that jesus uh, deals with our doubt in this passage and it happens at the table it happens at the place where jesus shares himself with us you notice at the end of this passage in verse 
35, when the disciples finally make it back to Jerusalem and they speak to the apostles, they hear from them, yes, the Lord has risen. He even appeared to Peter, and now they're back, and they tell what Jesus had done on the road and how they had seen him, and it zeroes in. It says that he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. We might be tempted to overlook that. It's a little thing. Just this normal, everyday occurrence. It wasn't a worship service. It wasn't the bread and the wine and the full sacrament. And it wasn't uh, Jesus sharing another last supper with his disciples. But we are meant to see this and connect it to the Lord's Supper. And the work that he has done to give himself and to break his body and to shed his blood for his people. Take a look again at verse 30. Notice what it says. When he was at table with them, which is strange, by the way. He's a guest in their house. And he does what the the head of the household would normally do. He's the one who breaks the bread and, and gives the blessing. Anyway, when he was with them at the table, he took bread. And he blessed and broke it and gave it to them. He took, he blessed, he broke, he gave. Turn back to chapter 22. Verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. There is no doubt that we are meant to see this as a flashback to what Jesus has done. This table that he has given to his people. A reminder of that first time that he used bread and wine to declare what he was about to do for his disciples. And it's still the table that ought to remind us of what he has done for his people. And that's the reason we come over and over again. That's the reason believers come, whether strong in our faith or weak in our faith, we come again and again to the table. We come to have our eyes opened and to recognize Jesus, to be reminded that he shares himself with us, that he has given himself for us. That's what this table is all about. Sometimes we need that reminder. In his book, Doubting, theologian uh, and apologist Alistair McGrath tells a story about a a photograph that he found while cleaning out one of his aunt's estates. His aunt had lived into her 80s, and she had never married. Yet the family found, as they were cleaning out, among her possessions, they found a very old, very tattered photograph of a young, handsome man. They started to do a little research. They found out that Very early in life, this aunt had fallen hopelessly in love with the man in that picture. And here's what he says. He says, it had ended tragically. She never loved anyone else. And she kept a photograph of the man she had loved for the remainder of her life. She kept the picture partly to to remind herself that she had once been loved by someone. Later in life, it could have all seemed a dream, an illusion something she had invented in her old age to console her in declining years, except that that photograph reminded her it had not been invented. She really loved someone else and was loved in return. That is the reminder that we find at the Lord's table. 
The same snapshot that's been passed down through Christ's church, given by him to his beloved bride, century after century after century. Not some ritual that we have invented to come together and say, isn't it nice to have a ceremony and to end on a high note together. No, this is a reminder that he was here that he did give himself, that he was raised, and that he is coming back. This meal that Jesus shared on the night before he was crucified, he replayed on the same day that he was raised, and he points to the direction of the celebration that he's going to share with his redeemed people when he comes again in glory. So dear friends, what do you do with the doubt that you don't know how to get rid of? There is a risen Savior who is capable of taking it away, who is waiting to give you a new perspective on him and his suffering, who is willing to open your eyes to see him as he is, who is calling you to come and receive as he shares himself with you, calling you to believe that all of it is true. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, God of resurrection power and glory and forgiveness and grace, we have nothing in our hands to bring to you to offer as a sacrifice for ourselves, but we thank you for Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who came in your righteous right arm to be judged and to take the judgment that we should deserve. Oh Lord, we pray that for all the doubting hearts here today, and that you would give us faith more and more. Give us assurance, O oh Lord, in this salvation. Give us belief in the one who was handed over for our sins and was raised up for our justification, that we would see him as he is, that our eyes would be opened. O oh Lord, give us faith that makes our hearts burn with love for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.